the middle of a series called Now What? And what we're talking about is now what, since we are a church, and since we have a mission to make disciples, how does that work out? And so we're talking about some of the ways that works out. Caleb began the series talking about mission and our community on mission, on mission, sharing the gospel of Christ uh, you know, wherever God leads us. Last week, Caleb talked about serving, that we, are, that we serve not because we're obligated to, not because it's a uh, requirement to fulfill some law, but we do it out of gratitude for what God has done for us. Next week, we're going to talk about giving, but this week, we're going to talk about worship. So, uh, let's get going. Bye. The Apostle John had heard from the angel who showed him what was to come. John had been shown that uh, what must happen in the world is it finally and totally rebels against God and against the Lamb, who was also the Lion. John saw those who loved Christ and died for him. John heard, as part of worship, by the host of heaven, the declaration made about those saints that said that they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. That was part of their worship. At least seven times in Revelation, we see scenes of worship where the host of heaven worships God and Christ. <clears throat> John saw the defeat of evil. He saw the defeat of evil and corrupt people in the world who had rejected Christ. He saw the defeat of Satan and the defeat of death itself, both thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. John saw the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. He saw the residence, <coughs> saw the residence of the saints, the new Jerusalem. John saw God on his throne, surrounded by those saints in relationship with God. And after seeing all this, John testified to his personal eyewitness of these things. And then, what do you think he did? <clears throat> what you have done? He worshipped. But his worship was misdirected. Revelation 22, 8 and 9. I, John, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Often when we hear the word worship, we think of this place. Or a place like it. The place where we gather together to worship. We often call it a worship service. Worship takes different forms. Singing, praying, giving hearing the word, participating in fellowship, serving one another. It's important to understand that worship is not limited to singing. And worship is not limited to this place or limited to some of the forms we just mentioned. Worship can take place anywhere, like the prison in Philippi or from the ground that Stephen was being stoned. Worship can take place in the poor parts of Manila, in a room with a dirt floor or in a, in a uh, open-air restaurant. Worship can take place in the leper colony in Burundi on the African continent. We're in a beautiful worship center in Sacramento, California. Worship can be in a large group or a small group or no group at all. 
It can be done while you're driving down the expressway. I would caution you, though, if you're worshiping on the expressway, please don't close your eyes. Please don't raise your hands. Worship can take place in a child's room when mom and dad are reading the child a Bible story. Worship can take place at a place called the California Institute of the Arts. When I was in the young adult group, uh, after not very long after I became a Christian, we did submission to this place. We would go over there and sit in the lunchroom and talk with people. And a few times we actually held uh, worship services for some of the Christians who were there. California Institute of the Arts is, how do I describe it? Uh, a flaming, progressive, liberal institute of quote-unquote higher education. And when we held those worship services, some of the folks who attended were atheists, and some of them were Satanists. Mm. A fun time was had by all. <laughs> the point is, is that worship can take place under any circumstances, as long as the worship is made to God, as the angel told John. This is a simple direction to worship that we are going to talk about today. We're going to talk about worship as heart, worship as sacrifice, worship as service, and worship as word. Let's pray. Father God, why we worship is because of what you have done for us. You sent Christ to be, to take our place, to be the sacrifice for us, so that you could give us the opportunity to come to you with belief, and not only escape death, Father, but to spend eternity with you and Jesus. Thank you for I pray, Father, that you teach us to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Worship is hard. Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman. Most of you, I think, probably know the story. Jesus got right to the point with her. He talked about himself as, a, as the living water. And he talked about her and her life and exposed her unrighteousness. At that, <laughs> she tried to change the subject. She didn't like being told about that. So she said... You know, uh, sir, we uh, Samaritans believe that worship should be done here in Samaria on Mount Gerizim, but you Jews think it should be done in Jerusalem. At that, Jesus got to the heart of worship. John 4, 23 and 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit in truth. To worship in spirit is to understand that, uh, that worship of God is not dependent on place, or form, or stance, or liturgy, or music, or anything else. I've been around long enough to remember the uh, difficult transition that took place many years ago in churches who were used to forms of worship that included, well, an organ, occasionally a piano, a piano, and only hymns. Those were the right forms of worship. Then somebody thought adding an electric guitar or some drums would be a good idea. And then somebody else thought that, well, instead of singing hymns, we could sing choruses all the time. Remember, some of you might remember Maranatha music. Might have been a good idea, but Many people stuck on the forms of what we might call traditional forms of worship. Didn't like it. They thought it was 
is uh, <coughs> wrong or worse. And many people left the church because of that. And sadly, as some were stuck on these traditional forms of worship, others got stuck on the non-traditional forms of worship, drums, choruses, uh, electric guitars. In their minds, that was the right form of worship. Focusing on forms is not worship. It's certainly not worshiping in spirit. Worship in spirit is to worship God out of one's relationship with God, which is a spiritual relationship, and it's not dependent on place or forms or other external features. Worship comes from my gratitude to God for what he has done in my life through Jesus Christ. The forms of worship should only be servants of how we worship God. You might prefer hymns. You might prefer Hillsong music. You might prefer electric guitars, or you might prefer organs. But whatever you prefer, true worship of God comes as a result of my gratitude toward God for the life that he has given me. Your gratitude toward God for the life he has given you. And the forms of worship are just that. They're forms. <coughs> worship in truth is to worship God for who he really is and for what he has done. Not for who you think he is. The only way to know God, we talked about this yesterday in Man Cave, the only way to know God is for God to reveal himself to us. We are finite created beings who cannot conceive of God as he is on our own. In order for us to know him, he must tell us who he is. This is why God revealed himself in the Word. I want to give you three examples of God's revelation of himself. First, Exodus 34, 6 through 8. The Lord passed by before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped him. So God told Moses who he is. And Moses' response was to worship. When we are confronted with the character of God, we worship. Second example, Psalm 136, 1 through 9. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of God, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. That word, steadfast love, those words are relation to my favorite Hebrew word, uh, hesed, which means steadfast love or loving kindness or everlasting love. To him who does great wonders, for his hesed endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his hesed endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his hesed endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his hesed endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his said endures forever. To the moon, or the moon and the stars, to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. The whole of Psalm 36, just 136, is just like that. If you want to sit down and worship, open to one Psalm 136. It's a great place to go. Psalm 136 highlights what God does and highlights who He is. And then the third example, actually two verses, 1 John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. 
he, that is Jesus, has made him known. And then Hebrews 1 3. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus shows us the Father. Jesus shows us the Father both in his character and in his acts. You want to worship God? Get to know Jesus. Worship as sacrifice. You know, the center of Old Testament worship was the uh, sacrificial system. There were, it seems, almost endless prescribed sacrifices and offerings. Let me name a few. Burnt sacrifices, whole sacrifices, sin sacrifices, grain sacrifices, incense offerings, blood sacrifices, meal offerings, peace offerings, drink offerings, free will offerings, wave offerings, guild offerings, votive offerings, thank offerings. That's just a few. Slow down. <laughs> All these require the person making the sacrifice or making the offering to give up something that belonged to him or her. It costs them. It might have cost them a sheep, or a dove, or grain, or money. It costs them. Christ came to be the sacrifice for us so that we no longer have to offer sacrifices for ourselves. Except, even believers are commanded to sacrifice. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16. Through him, then, let us continuously offer up a sacrifice of praise, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The author of Hebrews, in this passage, in this section of Hebrews, is contrasting the Old Testament sacrificial system with the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. That sacrifice frees believers frees them from the never-ending cycle and ritual of covering sin, and frees believers from sin to live for Christ. The author prescribes two kinds of sacrifices here. One is the sacrifice of praise, worship that acknowledges God's name. The idea behind acknowledges here means to publicly proclaim God. That is to not be ashamed to worship and glorify God, even in the presence of others. Such sacrifice costs too, it costs to be right. Second sacrifice prescribed here for believers is sharing what we have. In the words of Acts 2, is to share with those who have need. Such sacrifices can be money, time, food, transportation, shelter, labor, strength, prayer, encouragement. All of these cost. Praise for our lips and the medium needs are both true worship in the context of sacrifice. And then worship is service. One more kind of sacrifice prescribed in the New Testament for believers. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, which I highly recommend you take some time to read, Paul talks about our common salvation. He talks about our salvation couched in the context of his love, in his grace, in his righteousness, and in the, by his gift of faith. In the light of all that, Paul then makes an appeal to his readers and to us. Romans 12:1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul appeals to us to respond to what God has done for us in providing salvation, using the language of animal sacrifice, 
Paul says God wants sacrifices that are holy and acceptable. That is, meeting all the requirements for a proper sacrifice. God has made us holy and acceptable because of Christ. So we are to offer ourselves, we are to offer our bodies, and because we have been made holy and acceptable, we can be living sacrifices. That's a good thing, living sacrifices. This is, that is continually offering ourselves to God, which Paul says is our spiritual worship. Those two Greek words translated spiritual worship are translated in a variety of ways, depending on the translation you might be reading. It could be translated spiritual worship, service of worship, true and proper worship, true worship, or reasonable service. Certainly there's a similarity there within those translations. And it's centered around the idea of worship. But the nature of this worship, this spiritual worship, might be a little unclear. Is it true worship? Is it service of worship? Is it spiritual worship? Is it reasonable service? The Greek word translated spiritual, logikos, is not a common word used in the New Testament. In fact, it's only used twice. And it's not, a, it's not the common word used to, trans, uh, to uh, take the meaning spiritual. The word where we get our English word, not <coughs> but where we get our English word logical, is from that Greek word, logikos. So offering ourselves as living sacrifices is the logical thing to do in view of what God has done for us. It's the reasonable the word translated worship is also revealing. The word is tied to the Old Testament idea of worship, particularly worship performed by the priests, the priests in the temple. The worship by priests was uh, seen as how they served in the temple, not just singing, not just praying. But the primary worship of the priests is what they did in service to God. It was cleaning the temple, it was maintaining the temple, it was counseling people in keeping the priestly clothing and the priestly utensils pure and undefiled. It was in helping people properly perform their own rituals. And it was also in performing sacrifices. Worship was what they did to serve God. Worship is service. Thus, the translation of those two words by a couple of versions, reasonable service, seems to fit pretty well here. This is in keeping with the exhortation Paul makes in Romans 12. 1. The exhortation that because of God's mercy to us in providing the grace of salvation, our reasonable service, our reasonable worship, is to present ourselves to God for his use as living sacrifices. Paul puts the same idea in another way also in Romans, this time in Romans 6, uh, 6.13. Do not present your members as sin, as sin, as sin. <coughs> as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So we've looked at what you might call a high-level view of worship, a kind of a foundational look at worship. We've seen that worship is not a rote exercise. Worship is not something we do on a Sunday before we go have lunch because we think God will like us if we do that. But is that which comes out of our spirit and out of our heart and praise and rejoicing and gratitude to our God for who He is and as He's revealed Himself? 
We've seen that worship, while certainly joyful and certainly lifts our hearts to God, is a sacrifice. First, a praise to God for the sacrifice of Christ, but also as a sacrifice where we give what God has called us to give to those around us who have need. Worship as sacrifice costs our time, it costs our pride, it costs our possession, it costs our effort. It would be a sacrifice, it costs. We've seen that worship is that which is reasonable for us to do, to serve God for salvation he has given us in Jesus Christ. I want to spend the rest of our time talking about the practice of worship, worship in his word. Now, what I want to do here is I want to take a look at Nehemiah chapters 8, 9, and 10. Don't worry, we're not going to do a verse-by-verse exposition. <laughs> we're not even going to read the whole three chapters, but there are principles we can draw out of this passage regarding worship. The focus of the book of Nehemiah is the rebuilding of the wall for the city of Jerusalem. The Jews had been permitted to return from their captivity in Babylon back to Israel. One of the first things that had to be done was to rebuild the wall. Once the wall was completed, and once the people began to settle into their lives and their homes, an important event took place. And this is how it begins. This is Nehemiah 8, 1 through 8, and I'm reading this out of the NET version. All the people gathered together in the closet which was in front of the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which included men and women and all those able to understand what they heard. This happened on the first day of the seventh month. So he read it before the plaza in the front of the water gate from dawn until noon. Now that's a worship service. Dawn until noon. <laughs> I don't think we're going to do that. From dawn until noon before the men and women and those children who could understand. All the people were eager to hear the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a towering wooden platform constructed for this purpose. Standing near him on his right and also on his left are names that I'm not going to read. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in plain view of all the people, for he was elevated above all the people. When he opened the book, all the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people replied, Amen, Amen, as they lifted their hands and they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And there's some more people whose name I'm not going All of them were Levites. They were teaching people the law as the people remained standing. They read from the book of God's law, explaining it and imparting insight. Thus the people gained understanding of what was read. Okay, so the first thing I want to point out here is uh, this wooden platform that Ezra stood on. It's called a towering wooden platform that elevated him above everybody else. I'd like to propose to the elders today have to build a towering wooden platform that I can stand on. I think you're already standing on it. You're on one. I think it might be just It's just got carpet on it. The elders in the room are shaking their heads. The size of the platform is not a principle of worship. But there are several principles that you have. First is that Ezra uh, brought the law before the people, men to women and women who could understand. And then in verse 3, again, it says, the law was read to men and women and those children who could understand. 
Children can worship. Children can understand God's word. And we encourage anyone, everybody, who can understand, even to a degree, to participate in worship here. And not just here, but in any situation where you open God's word and where you intend to worship. We welcome children. We certainly have the nursery, we certainly have the uh, kids' ministry ages four to eight, but if you feel like your child can gain some understanding, we'd love to have kids here. Second, people were eager to, eager to hear the book of the law. Some versions say that people were attentive. God's word is not required to be in front of you in order for you to worship, but if you worship in absence of the word of God, in absence of the scriptures in front of you, you still need to worship God for who he is and what he has done. The principle here is God is that the word of God is what prompts worship. And remember, when Ezra read from the book of the law, he was reading from everybody's favorite books to read, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. <laughs> All of God's word prompts worship. Thirdly, God, as God's word was taught, it was explained, and people gained understanding. Ephesians chapter 4 says that God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Paul told Timothy to instruct and teach and exhort people in God's word, to hold firmly to the faith, to point out the truth of God's word, and to accurately teach the message of truth. James says that, if, that few should teach, because those who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, while it is those people, pastors, teachers, others, God is placed in these roles to teach the word of God, and by teaching to help the saints understand the word and thus to worship, I would suggest to you that it is also your responsibility as a believer to read and study God's word so that you may understand it and so that you may worship it. And if you go, man, I read the Bible, I just don't understand it, keep reading talking to people, discussing with them, getting in groups where you discuss the scriptures together. It's your responsibility as well. And the ultimate author, author of the Bible is, is the Holy Spirit. He's the one who moved people or carried them along to produce God's work. You see that in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. It's the same Holy Spirit who reveals the scriptures to us so that we can know the things freely given to us by God. You see that in 1 Corinthians 2, 6-12. And Jesus himself said that the Holy Spirit will teach us. John 14, 25-26. If you're going to worship God properly, you need to know Jesus, and you need to know God's Word. Fourth, worship is joy. When the book of the law was read, the leaders and the people realized that one of the things the law said was that there was to be a feast. The day of which happened to coincide with the time they were reading the book of the law. You see that in Nehemiah 8, 9 through 18. The leaders told the people that this was a holy feast, but it was to be joyful. The word of God, when applied, will bring joy. Nehemiah 8, 12. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the biblical foundation for potlucks. <laughs> Five. If we had time to read through the whole of chapter nine, we find that worship also prompts the confession of sin. And at the same time, 
It prompts the recognition of God's faithfulness to forgive sin and to restore. As the people confessed, they worshiped by remembering all that God had done through the history of Israel and realizing the failure of the Jews, but also realizing the steadfast love of God for his people to forgive. Nehemiah 9, 16 through 17. This is the people confessing to God. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and they did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. The word enabled the people to worship, to recognize God's grace and forgiveness. And then worship brings a renewed desire to follow God. Like chapter 9, we don't have time to go through all chapter 10, but by the end of the reading of the law and the feasting and the confession and the acknowledging of God's grace for them, the people committed themselves to follow God in every aspect of the law. Nehemiah 10, 28 and 29. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter, enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. Now, of course, they did not, they could not keep the law. They failed at their commitment. They could not help but sin. In contrast, all those who have been saved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, all of those who believe in Christ, we have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And by His power, we do not have to sin. Now, we do sin from time to time. We're still in this body of flesh. But when we do sin, we know that we go correctly to God to confess and immediately receive His forgiveness. We are free from sin. Back to Romans, Romans 6, 5-14. For if we have been united with Christ, excuse me, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we no longer be enslaved by sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, Jesus Christ. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And to read what we read just a little earlier. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. That is enough by itself to cause us to worship God for what He has accomplished in us, for all of us who believe. I hope it is as clear to you as it is to me that God's Word is the primary catalyst for our worship. 
God, God's word informs us about the person and the acts of God. God's word brings us understanding. With understanding, we worship. God's word brings us joy in worship. God's word prompts us to confession <coughs> as we worship, and as we worship, to receive God's grace and his forgiveness. God's word brings us to an ever-renewing of our desire to follow God in worship. I mentioned that when we began, there are at least seven scenes in Revelation of worship where the hosts of heaven fall down before God and before Christ. The worship centers around the victory of God and the victory of the Lamb over those who have rejected Christ and around the vindication of the saints. The first scene of worship in Revelation shows what are called the four living creatures praising God. Revelation 4, 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, and would you say the rest of this with me? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Another scene of worship in Revelation is what I want to leave you with today. Revelation 5, 6 through 14. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Finish verse 9 and verse 10 with me. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, and for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a king of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked, and I heard around the throne and the, four, and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, see this last part of verse 12 with me, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessings. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and in all that is in it and in them saying, and please finish the rest of to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, and bless them in honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Amen. As the angel told John, worship God. 